Welcome back to Multiverse Bible, the anthology narrative podcast series, whatever you want to call it, where we are imagining how the lives of people would be different if the Bible that they read was different. And since this is a Christmas special, we're going to reimagine the Christmas story and we're going to think about how things would change if instead of being this like noble, unsung hero like we know him to be, of course I'm talking about Joseph, Jesus' early father, um, what if he had actually divorced Mary quietly? like he thought about doing, and maybe even ignored the dreams he had and the angel who came to visit him. What if? That's what we're asking in this Christmas special, and we're going to hear the story about the life of somebody, how it was affected by this change, by this what if. So without further ado, we're going to be getting into today's story here in Multiverse Bible, our Christmas special. It's called... Feliz. Here we go. I am Emmanuel, because that's the name Maria Flores called me 45 years ago today. I was born at a mission clinic in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. When I returned to visit mis primos for the first time in my adulthood, of course years later, I drove by this clinic, this dingy storefront triage. It was the kind of place you went to die from something easily preventable. But that place was where my lungs took in their first weeping breaths. It's where I made Maria's dreams come true. I made her a mama. Such joy wrapped in a derelict package Places like this would get torn down back home in Kansas City. She was alone when I was born, my Maria. Papa was dead and gone, and mi abuela, well, she wouldn't grace this hovel with her presence. Maria had made her bed, and now she would lie in it, sweating and straining on blood-soaked sheets the bricks of Abuela's self-righteousness dropped from above onto a teenager in labor, my mother. No younger than Abuela was when she had had her, but far less married. Francisco Moreno is probably my biological father, but it also might be David Moreno, his brother, or Javier with no last name, apparently, or somebody else in La Disgracia gang, the curse. Girls roped into their ranks possessed the illusion of choice. If you're born in the wrong barrio, see, you're branded quickly into the herd like no more than pleasure stock. Maria's neck had literal marks from the gang's lasso. I have a biological father somewhere in Honduras, probably buried shallow in a red clay hole or devoured by rats. I don't know. 
I don't really care much. I don't have any father but the one I met later. But we'll get to him soon enough. At the beginning, all I needed was Maria. I had her, and she had me. The very act of having me was an act of disobedience. It was rebellion in the flesh. Because, well, if Maria was nursing me, it meant she wasn't gratifying la disgracia. If she was changing me, she wasn't getting her hands dirty from the chores they made her do. If she sang me to sleep, she wasn't whispering flattery against their tattooed necks. It was me or them. That's why Francisco told her to get rid of me or leave. And Maria left. I had somehow given her courage. I can't explain that at all. All I did was need and need and cry. Yet my mere existence somehow drew her to the light. Thankfully, infants don't have egos. It would have inflated my already big head. <laughs> Maria left them. But they didn't leave her. Soon, questions were asked, accusations were made. One day, a top dog from their gang was gutted on a street corner. It was broad daylight. It was an unforgivable offense, damnable by the morality of the streets. In particular, the same street and the same corner Maria and I were living in my tia's tiny extra room. And those curses, they spun the bottle of blame and it was weighted towards our little family. Maria was disgruntled, clearly. What chica would ever want to leave their clutches? Absurd. Blasphemous, even. And she would come to her senses eventually. They swore she would, of course, but she did not. And the only possible explanation left was that she had turned coat switching loyalties to another gang of violent man-children in Tegucigalpa. She was a snitch, a traitor. She had to be. Kill her. Kill her baby. By God's grace, Maria and I had already fled in time. My tia bore the weight of their disappointment with black eyes and a cracked rib. Hopefully nothing more, but I suspect there was. My Maria will always leave out details. I used to believe it was to protect me, but maybe it was exercising a sweet gift of divine forgetfulness. I owed Tia my life, and I told her when I came back and visited. But she never makes it a big deal. Maria fled with me to where else but my abuela's crossed arms. The woman's face remained stone, but she gave Maria and I a safe place to stay in another barrio from hers for long enough to get us connected to a troop heading al norte. You see, there was no hope in making something of our predicament there in Tegucigalpa, in Honduras. Our choice was exile or death. 
and the young men and women we paired with longed for a better home, and they packed with them that promise of hope and little more. The way things are are not the way they will always have to be. And so we went after that vast horizon across the border into Mexico. Maria told me about sinking canoes to cross the swampy rivers. She told me how they called us dirty Indians and even murdered a few Hondurans too trusting or just too tired to run. Mercy saved us in the form of a tourist resort. It was not the place of my birth, but the place I heard my name for the first time and knew what it meant. My mother's love, her Emmanuel. The vacation getaway where we had gotten away was called Playa Rosa, I believe, or something similar. Maria's recollection got blurry on names and places, and there were other resorts where she worked eventually, and other hotels in Cancun. At the beginning, it was peak season when we arrived. Managers of these resorts would go on a hiring frenzy. They didn't care that my mother was some gang wench, or even worse, a Central American. Maria could fold, she could clean, she could show up on time, and she would agree to being paid less than what was fair, just as long as it was enough for her and for me. But then there was Carlos Ortiz, the father I never asked for, the man I didn't think I needed, but Maria needed him. And she wanted him. And he wanted her. I can't really fathom how good it must have felt to feel wanted. And Carlos, he was the farthest thing from La Disgracia. He was an unashamed, Holy Ghost baptized Pentecostalo. Most of my memories from Cancun were in the little storefront church where we met him, called Rey de Reyes. Church of the King of Kings. When Carlos wasn't breaking his back doing landscape work at Playa Rosa or somewhere else, he was leading worship with his sixth string. My Maria was smitten from the start, but they kept things holy. My emerging toddlerhood was a chastity belt on top of their already burgeoning purity. Maria was an unwed mother escaping exploitation Carlos's wife had left him for his brother after they crossed the first time. Their commitment to each other, Maria and Carlos, it was seasoned with life's hard-earned wisdom. Before long, though, they had their wedding in Rey de Reyes with me as a ring bearer. And I think it was the first time that I started going by Mani for short. Cancun. Cancun was terrible by all accounts of objectivity, yet despite our poverty and exhaustion, Maria and Carlos put food on the table and I went to school or something like a school. Carlos never hit Maria and 
She never stepped out on him. Their only crime against each other was working too much. I was a latchkey kid during these formative years, spending afternoons and evenings doing one of a few things. First, I'd just be locked inside. Childhood traumas in Honduras held tightly, and that was a gift and a curse. The fear I gleaned from Maria's stories was a prison in that it made me more aware than some of the other children of the dangers that could be lying in wait. Behind the automated gates and flowered brick walls of places like La Playa Rosa was the real Cancun, the other side. Tourists say they want autentico, but get angry when the tap water gives them diarrhea. <laughs> if you can afford an all-inclusive resort package, you can afford the Dasani. And we could use the extra income, so buy it. Destinations like the Playa Rosa are the cheeseburger and chicken tenders on the menu of a Mexican restaurant. Authentic Cancun was beautiful, but it was deadly and dirty at the same time. There were wonderful markets and delightful mariachi, but there were some streets where heads would roll literally. The cartel was there, and they were like Disgracia, but with nicer cars. I stayed inside for many days, just reading books, but there were other days when Carlos's nephews or younger cousins would be living with us off and on, and there was safety in numbers, so we would go out and play football and swim. They would make fun of me for how skittish I was, but they would never joke me because I was Indio, and I'm grateful for that. They were my first friends. And years passed. We moved around with different relatives into different spots around Cancun. All of them cramped and hot, but all of them home. I was Mani, and Maria and Carlos were Mama and Pa. Always tired, but still together. The energy Mama had left, she wished to spend on another baby, but it was not to be. She prayed and prayed, but the answer stayed the same. No. Carlos prayed, and the answer was simply, not yet. He blamed what so many righteous men blame. Themselves. He needed to make more so that his wife could stay at home. It was shameful to him how much she had to do to keep our family afloat. And Carlos thought it was all his fault. Mama didn't know how to stand her ground against chivalry, even the misguided kind. She had never experienced it before Carlos, and my new papa's mind was made up. El Norte or bust. It was time for him to go the way of the beast. La Bestia is the north to south train through the mountains and forests of our vast nation into the brown lands of Sonora. It was ages until we heard back from him. I was old enough then to help sell merchandise in a tourist trap plaza, where there were the usual fare, ponchos, fake alligator wallets, Frida Kahlo, everything. I had friends there outside of family, 
boys old enough to begin running for the cartel bosses. The day we got the call from Carlos telling us to join him up there was the day Roger, a 15-year-old from a taco stand, was made into an example. Stray dogs lapped up the blood that La Policia didn't care to spray down. It was time, and then some, to leave. Evil never left us. It followed us to our new home. By God's providence, Carlos and others were eventually able to secure us enough funds to ride most of the way up to the border. We didn't have to train hop on La Bestia. But we still would have to cross the border into Los Estados Unidos on foot. There were 17 of us crammed into minivan without seats, and everything was done at night. It was Mama and me, some of the cousins and nephews from earlier, and complete strangers, all with ball caps and hoodies and probably not enough water. I remember after a couple of handoffs from vehicle to vehicle and more cash exchanged, we at last met our ticket out, the last coyote into the border. He had a code name of some sort like Duke. He must have imagined himself as one of the last in a dying breed of cowboys, but he wore no boots and no 10-gallon hat. There was nothing heroic about these coyotes. They were an inconvenient necessity for people like us, desperate. And he knew that. He knew that he was the ticket out and the way through. He knew the way that we didn't. And he had us in the palm of his hand. We were just a job to him and not 17 souls with 17 stories. If things went south and we were caught by the patrolman, or worse, the thugs of the cartel, Duke would surely disappear into the wilderness cash in hand. His incentive for keeping us alive, his only incentive for keeping us alive, was advertisement purpose. As an emerging teen, I thought to myself, how many had gone before me who hadn't made it? How many hadn't lived to be advertisement for their coyote, to prove that he was up for the task? How many Marias, how many Emmanuels, how many had already succumbed and been swallowed by the scorched womb of the desert? At dawn, we stopped our march to rest and to drink. Our water was getting low. Our trek had been delayed with the sightings of a jeep in the distance, and then another, and then strange and threatening lights at dusk. We wasted time. We wasted more water. Have you ever been so hot that you were cold? We were under constant bombardment. But all we could do was wait and pray. A few young men went their own way. We had learned that our coyote's gun was fake. Duke was an imposter, so much for a cowboy. 
His demands for us became idle for these guys, and several braved the hostile terrain on their own. They wouldn't wait any longer. If they got caught, at least they could sit in the back of an air-conditioned patrol car. The detention center might even have ice. And I was at that age when I admired them for giving up. It felt strong at the time. And I was young, I could always try again. First-time offenders would get at least a second chance at El Norte. The Coyote said if one more deserted, though, he would desert us. It was jeopardizing our position that these young men were walking off on their own. And I was in a quandary. I wanted to leave, but could I leave my mama, my Maria? Would these young men take me in as one of their own, or would they desert me? I was so thirsty, though, and what if they could find water? I didn't care about anything after a little while, just because I was afraid. So afraid, too afraid to think rationally. And a few there cried tears that they couldn't afford to lose. So valuable. But Maria did not. She just took me in her hands like she had when I was born. She took me in her hands then. I wasn't even fully conscious enough to be embarrassed in front of these others. I couldn't believe how strong Mama was. But all the years of lifting mop buckets filled to the brim had paid off, I guess. I was in her vice, a petulant youth... But she nursed me again with the last few drops from her own canteen. There was nothing more after that, after my tantrum. She forced it onto my lips and I was almost choked. But that's when everything grew calm. The coyote, myself, those of us who hadn't gone off into the wasteland. It all grew still. The dry air was silent for Maria to speak. It was like we were back at Rey de Reyes. Carlos was singing and playing guitar, but this time, Maria, my mama, would be the preacher. She held my wrists, but it was gentler now. And that's when she spoke to me, and I listened, and I've never listened more closely to anything else my entire life when mama, my Maria, spoke to me that night in the desert. She said, Emmanuel is your name because you were born on Christmas Eve. Can you imagine? And your name, your name means that God is with us. And I called you that because I gave birth to you alone. And all I had in that clinic were the stories I grew up with. Because the mother who told me these stories wouldn't squeeze my hand during labor. It was just me there. And the stories and the hope they brought me. And then that hope became real. When you came and you were perfect. And I knew I wasn't alone. The Lord was truly with me. And it reminded me of the story of Santa Maria, Our Lady. Jose had 
divorced her quietly. Her family had cast her out into the desert. She was surely going to die. But God sent his angel, Gabriel, to lead her to Jacob's well. It looked dry and empty and barren, but every time she lowered the pail, it came back full, and she drew more and more. The Samaritan strangers came and cared for her, and they too received drink. God was with them all. Emmanuel. She and the baby Jesus returned to Elizabeth and Zechariah, and the wise men came, and then the baby grew and became strong. Don't give up, money. Don't give up. The Lord is still with us. The hope from this story is still real. Takayote scoffed, but <laughs> I remember he still crossed himself and kissed his necklace at the sound of my mother's story, the truth of La Navidad. We walked again a dark, that true dark where even the stars seemed dim, and it would be our last attempt. And we went out like Hagar and Ishmael. We went out like Mary and Jesus guided by the mercy of the Lord. I saw no angels that night, but what I did see were jugs of water buried neck deep. They were hot. The water was milky, like it had been calcified, but it was filled to the brim. Each one of these jugs, we would survive. We would cross over. We would meet Carlos at a gas station in Arizona, and he had a whole life waiting for us, a good life, like the one Joseph decided not to give Mary and Jesus, a life he missed out on, that Joseph. And I continued to live this good life, even after all these years, even after now, Carlos, my papa, and Maria, my Maria, have both gone on to meet the Rey de Reyes in the flesh. But until I go to and leave my family in this world of borders and cartels behind, my parents are with the Lord and therefore still with me. And Cancun is with me, Tegucigalpa is with me, the desert is with me. But above all else, God is with me. And each day, there are new jugs of water left behind in the sand. The well does not run dry. It hasn't, and I believe, it never will. Feliz Navidad. Thanks so much for listening to this Christmas special of Multiverse Bible. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was interesting to you and that it makes you 
appreciate the Christmas story that we do have more and more. I hope you all have a wonderful Christmas and enjoy time with family and hopefully get a chance to read through the original Christmas story in the gospel accounts yourselves. I plan on releasing some new content in the new year, which I hope you all will enjoy and spread the word about. As always, if there are stories that you like told, different questions you like answered, different what ifs you want explored, email those to me at readreads101 at gmail.com. Again, that is readreads101 at gmail.com. And forgive me for the super corny email address. Thanks, y'all. Have a Merry Christmas.